Once again, the order is Richard, Kelsey, Susanna, and Joe. Richard's up first. Good morning, Richard. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Thanks for calling. I have two questions. The first one is about a Celeste fig. Okay. Uh, We have a Celeste fig that's 10 feet tall. Early in the season, we got one fig off of the tree, but it's loaded with figs. They just don't get ripe. You got any suggestions? Water, water, water. Water. Yeah, figs are very shallow-rooted. They are very thirsty. Um, If you want to get the best performance out of that tree, uh, as far as growth, as far as uh, fruit production, keep about two inches of mulch over the as much of the root system as you can and if we don't get rain and by rain i mean at least an inch at a time uh give them a good thorough drink at least once a week how much how much sun is your celeste getting um it doesn't get real early morning sun Mm -hmm. but from about 10 o'clock until about three o'clock okay it would it would develop the figs would develop and fill out faster you know, if they had more hours of direct sun. But uh, uh, if you've got the little figs set, the, the water, a uh, little fertilizer wouldn't hurt either, but the water is the most important thing to get those figs developing. So, uh, and the nice thing about the Celeste, it can produce off and on throughout the entire summer months. But if there's any pruning or anything you could do to get it a little bit more sun, that would help. But at this point, mulch and water are going to be the main things that are going to give you that good crop of figs. Okay, great. The other question is a is a foundation planting. I have a bed that's about ten feet long, uh, has about uh, three feet of foundation that I want to cover up. Mm-hmm. Do you have a suggestion for a shrub to go there? Which uh, direction does this part of your home face? It faces east. Okay. And are there any big trees? Is this pretty strong sunlight over there, or is it and- shaded? It it gets uh, probably from uh, ten o'clock in the morning till twelve thirty. Okay, not, not not a whole not a lot of sun, but it does get some of the hot sun. Yeah, and um, there are a number of choices. Uh, one that always comes to mind for me is compact nandina. Nandina gets a bad rap because a lot of people remember the old ones that used to send out runners and become kind of invasive and a nuisance. Uh, The newer varieties do not have that problem. They are extremely tough, drought tolerant, no insect problems whatsoever, and uh, nice color in the fall. They don't ever drop their leaves, but the leaves, depending on how much sun they get, turn anywhere from a kind of a dull purple to an intense fiery orange-red, and then in the spring they turn back green again. So that is one of the really good hardy plants you could put over there. If you wanted... um, uh, if you wanted more of a, a lush green look, uh, uh, Dwarf Burford Holly going to grow to about five feet if that's not too tall for you, but it's going to be dense and totally obscure that uh, foundation. If you wanted something simple that's going to it's going to kind of barely cover it, uh, the giant form of what uh, we call either Liriope or Liriope will get up two and a half to three feet tall. I think that's prettier in combination with other things, but sometimes 10 feet's not a real long span to cover. Uh, right. Just something simple like that will do. Um, uh, golly, those are some of the some of the ones would be easiest. Now, dwarf pittosporum is going to take a little while to get up to three feet, but it would certainly do well there. 
And uh, their various perennial shrimp plant would be real pretty there, and it only freezes back about one year out of ten. Gives you lots of flowers through the summer months, and the hummingbirds would love you for planting that. Um, I can keep going if you want a, a very beautiful yellow flowering perennial that will freeze back some years, but not every year. Uh, there's a plant called Thryallis, T H R Y. A-L-L-I-S, I think, and that's the easy name. Galphemia is its botanical name, but uh, it's a pretty thing, and what I would think about doing if I were planting that is plant something evergreen so that even in the winter when it does freeze back, you're going to have some green foliage along there, but uh, it'll just be a world of yellow flowers from about April or May up until freezing weather in the fall. So those are a few suggestions. Well, great. You've given me a number of number of options here, so... That's my All job. Right. I appreciate the I appreciate the information and have a good weekend. You do the same, Richard. I appreciate the call. Thank you, sir. Okay, Kelsey's next. Good morning, Kelsey. Hi, Bob. Hi there. I have uh, a couple of fruit tree questions this morning. Okay. So I planted a Miho Setsuma um, this past winter, and it has been pretty steadily dropping leaves um they've been turning yellow the twigs have been dying back i feel like it's been getting enough water so i don't know if that's possibly a nutrient deficiency it is more likely a it has gotten too dry at some point doesn't mean you're not watering often enough it may mean it mean that you're not watering thoroughly enough nutrient deficiency would show up as you know a lighter color in the new leaves coming out when the older leaves are yellowing and dropping uh, that's about 99 percent of the time that shows uh, well it always shows root damage but about 99 percent of the time it just indicates that uh, it's been getting too dry at some point okay how, how okay. do you water it do you water with sprinkler system or hose or how, how do you go about doing it Usually a hose, okay. so maybe it just I need to sit there and water it for longer. Either that or turn the hose on very slowly, uh, lay it on the ground and let it run. Uh, the roots, satsumas of all sorts, miho included, are pretty deep-rooted plants, and if you're not getting the water down deeply enough to really soak that entire root ball, when we get into typical summer weather, it's going to start dropping some leaves. Okay. Yeah, it's been, I mean, it's been doing it for a while, for longer than just the summer, but um, I will definitely try and give it some more water then. Yeah, and again, it's, uh, as I always, I always tell people, there's no such thing as too much water, but there is too often. So when you water, really flood it. Then when that soil's dry, about a knuckle deep or so, it's time to really flood it again. Okay. And then uh, I also planted a peach tree, uh-huh. and unfortunately, you know, I had it um, I had it pruned to kind of start growing in that martini glass shape. <laughs> Very but, good. Uh, the, the deer had other plans for it, and they browsed it pretty badly, and it's it's extremely lopsided at this point. So I didn't know <laughs> if this winter I can just go and trim it all back. Sure. To try and. Well, okay. you you can reshape it now. Have you taken care of the deer issue? Or are they excluded from that area now? Yes. Okay, very good. Yeah, you'll just, uh, when the leaves are off, anytime between, say, late November and uh, mid-February, uh, might want to prune it actually a little bit earlier because I don't want it wasting its energy putting flowers on limbs that you're going to cut off. So figure sometime uh, by the Christmas to New Year holiday period, uh, go back in and and 
reshape the tree, even if it means being fairly brutal as far as how much you cut off. You sort of set yourself back a year in development, but uh, uh, this is not the kiss of death or any long-term thing. It just means being a little more patient. And waiting for those first tree-ripened peaches is one of the most challenging things in the world to be patient about, but uh, you're sure not in big trouble. Uh, they they just browsed it. They didn't uh, rub bark off uh uh, marking it or rubbing velvet off the antlers or something? No. Yeah, okay. they were just eating on it. Well, they they it, that's that's temporary damage, which the tree will certainly outgrow. Uh, be sure that root flare is exposed. Be sure you're feeding it fairly regularly. Okay. Great. Well, I think that's all the questions I had this morning. Well, you know where to find me if you have more. I appreciate the call, Kelsey. Thank, thank you. Thank you. I guess Susanna dropped off. She might have had the same question as somebody else, so we skip right on down to Joe. Good morning, Joe. It's been better, Bob. How are you doing today? <laughs> I'm great. How about you? Well, I'm I'm in mourning, and I'm trying to survive now, my wife. So um, uh, we had somebody coming who is reputable and does a great job at pruning trees. They've done many in my parents' neighborhood. Um, but there was a miscommunication on what to cut. So my crepe myrtle, which looks like a beautiful broccoli crown, now looks like asparagus. <laughs> uh, and it was about 30 feet tall. So um, uh, um, after I survived my wife's uh, uh, rage <laughs> and dealing with mine, um, I'm, I'm calling to say, okay, so besides miracle Grow, what do we put on it? Well, don't ever use miracle Grow. miracle Grow is not... Oh, I know. I'm- yeah, <laughs> you're looking for a miracle, but you'll. I'm looking for a miracle. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, we call that crepe murder, and I think it should be, you know, carry a capital punishment tag. But uh, uh, the the good news is it is growing to grow out of it with little or no help from you. This is probably Basham's party pink if it's that big. Yeah, it's about thirty feet. Yes, sir. Yeah, it was the white. It was the white flower, but it was it was just a beautiful bloom, and I was like, okay. "How could you even touch it?" Yeah, and is it multi-trunk, single-trunk? What uh, what's the overall shape of it? it it's single-trunk, probably about eight inches in diameter, um, okay. and it it goes up to split probably about two or three feet, uh, about three feet off the ground. Okay. You know, good fertilizer, I would recommend, uh, oh, Medina, Maestro Grow, Nature's Creation are all good brands. I would be giving it dry fertilizer <clears throat> probably every couple of months, and I might be supplementing it with a liquid like has to grow or, you know, one of the liquid fish products or a spoma or something like that. Again, there is not really anything to do except let it grow out. And it's 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 funny you mentioned it. My engineer this morning got a very short haircut. And he was debating about whether it's too short. And I said, well, that's the nice thing about bad haircuts is that they grow out pretty quickly. In the case of your crepe myrtle, in the case of Kelsey's peach tree, it is going to regrow you're probably going to have to direct that growth a little bit because you're going to get new growth forming from the ground all the way up to the top of this crepe myrtle. And you're just probably going to want to take off the little shoots that that are on the lower part of the trunk and then very selectively watch and choose the, you know, ones that are best 
positioned and pointed the right direction to grow. That's the fun thing about pruning. You can control the direction of the growth by choosing, you know, which of the little limbs you leave and which of the ones you take out. So at this point, it's it's been a setback, but it's, you know, it's not a permanent loss. So, you know, a brief period of mourning and a spreading the word on, uh, you know, the importance of communication um, I, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times a week I hear stories like this and a lot of them are a lot worse than yours. A lot of them are trees that get topped. A lot of them are by totally fly by night, hack, quack and stack tree people. Yeah. But, uh, you're just going to have to have a little patience with it. You can certainly help it with good nutrient and sure. thorough deep watering. Be sure that root flare is exposed, which you probably already have. But beyond that, right. Yeah, there, there's no need to paint wounds or anything else. It's just going to be v, being very vigilant. And um, it's tough when something's that far up in the air because, you know, the older I get, the less, less I like being up on ladders. But uh, it's just going to take some careful pruning and reshaping. And I give it about two seasons, and it'll be back to its original glory. Okay, I appreciate that. And then one question. Um, we bought a rental home. Um, has a beautiful lime tree in the back. Okay. It's exciting to see um, see it filling up with limes, and uh, the question that came up, and I said I know just who to ask. <laughs> um, when's the time to start picking limes? Okay, are, are these little limes or these great big limes? Uh, they're probably uh, when you say great big, there's probably something two inches in diameter. Okay, the reason I ask, there they're basically two types of limes. There are your big limes, which are more like four inches in diameter. They produce like lemons and satsumas and things. They bloom in the in the early spring, and then they are ready to pick in the fall. What you have is more likely um, the kind of tree that we call either a key lime or Mexican lime. They're the same thing. Some of them have thorns. Some of them don't. But the beauty of the uh, of these limes is that tree can bloom anytime, and the fruit ripens gradually. You should be picking good margarita makings all the way from you know April or so up through freezing weather in the fall. So. Um, just watch them when they begin to turn a lighter yellow, no longer a, you know, kind of that limey green. But when they start yellowing, those limes are as full and fully developed as they're going to be. So you can pick them any time. Okay. So, um, yeah, because they were still pretty hard to the touch right now. Yeah. And um, I mean, it's kind of interesting because all of a sudden they disappeared about maybe within the last um definitely the last month probably the last three weeks or so yeah and um and, they, and there's quite more than i imagined being on there so it's exciting okay let me ask you one thing joe do you know from the previous owners that this was a good productive lime tree or did you just sort of discover it after you acquired the property i discovered it afterwards when i had my uh, another reputable landscaper um come to me and say hey you got fruit bearing trees back there <laughs> okay, um, okay. answer me this yeah this one question about it does it have big thorns does it have world-class thorns on it i have not seen any and i imagine when i walked up to it and grabbed one line that i probably would have felt one so okay. i'm going to say no and here's the reason i ask because uh the root stock that is used for most citrus 
uh, which is called sour orange or trifoliate orange. Uh, the fruit looks very much like uh, a you know a lime until you try to eat it, and it is the most well sour orange is very appropriately named. But you can almost always identify the rootstock because it will have you know thorns that are two inches long and you know as big around as a you know ballpoint pen at the base. Uh, but I will I will be happier when you've picked your first lime and find it to be delicious because a lot of people who inherit a tree like that, whether through purchase or from a family, discover later on that it wasn't really a lime tree. It was just the rootstock that had grown out from a different citrus that had been planted there originally. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed for you. I think it probably is a good edible lime, but you're going to know within the next two or three weeks because uh, the little Mexican limes uh, develop, ripen pretty quickly, and they are oh so tasty. Awesome. I look forward to it. Thank you so much. I appreciate your help, and thanks for bringing me out of morning. <laughs> I, I'll, uh, you know, d- drown your sorrows with, uh, well, I wish you had a ripe lime to do something good with. But uh, <laughs> anyway, have a great weekend, and, and let me know when the, those uh, limes ripen. I will, Bob. Thank you very much. Thank have you, Joe. Thank you you very too. Much. Bye. All right. Kim's joined the party now, too. So it will be Mark, Esperanza, Paul, and Kim. And Mark's up first. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Bob. Well, good morning, sir. How are you? Oh, doing okay. Good. We um um we we have wild turkeys. <laughs> and, uh, we have a deer feeder set up for the turkeys. Uh huh. And uh, um we we just recently we have uh, a mom with four what I call teenagers that that came, showed up. Very good. And then we have two moms with. Twelve little babies about the size of bantam chickens. Oh, they you you know nature's wonderful. <laughs> who it, needs a it, who uh, needs a comedy channel when you have dogs in nature? That's our TV. Yeah, we have yeah. we have a big window here where we can watch them. The, the The moms of the little bitty babies taught them to chase those bigger birds. That's and fun. So there's two little bit there's two little bitty ones chasing this bird twice its size. <laughs> well, if they're little ones, you can call them Poults. If they're bigger ones, oh. if they're Toms, you call them Jakes. And I'm not yeah. sure what you would call the female half-grown ones, but uh, um, they're they're interesting, dumb-looking birds that are really very, very clever and very alert right. and a tremendous right. amount of fun both to listen to and to watch. Right. They're very good at what they need to know. They're not good at fences and stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, they're hard on the grasshopper population, too, which is a good thing. Right. Yep. Yep. So... Um, <clears throat> Flea beetles. Mm-hmm. We have our big eggplants just completely perforated, uh-huh. and and when they're smaller, I use spinosad, but I don't want to use it when they're blooming. So what do I do now? <laughs> oh, probably your little handheld vac. Um, okay. It's uh, there's not spinosad's about the best beetle killer we have, and uh, you, yeah, I wouldn't want to be using them while it's in bloom because spinosad is somewhat toxic to the bees. But there's yeah. not a le- lot out there, and little blasted things are pretty fast for the thumb and forefinger method. But uh, that little, you know, we used to call them dust busters, but there's so many brands of right. them out there now. Right. That's the best. That's what I do. That's the best thing I know to do. Now, now, so, so I think I know the answer. Um, so if you spray spin a set on something and it gets on the bloom and it's dry, it's still going to kill the bee, right? It has some toxicity, I will put it that way. It's okay. it's all a matter of course be uh, of course spinosad is a bacteria 
And so it's oh, okay. really just like yeah. people or anything else. It depends on the amount of the bacteria that they come okay. in contact okay. with. Uh, a small amount, not going to okay. cause any problem at all. Big amounts, yeah, that's, uh, it can remain, uh, okay. can remain toxic. Because I can spray them after dark, but it's, yeah, okay. And and then online it mentioned neem oil for those. Have you ever tried that? Well, neem oil is great, and you definitely have to do it after dark because okay. it is okay. has a high, okay. what we call phytotoxicity. Being an oil base, yeah. it is going to burn. I've not okay. had real good luck with it, uh, okay. but uh, okay. it's always worth a try. Just be sure I'll your neem is super fresh. Oh, Okay. I'll try the vacuum. I think I can. Well, the plants are pretty big, but I'll try that. Okay. Try that first. Up. The sun goes, even with no rain, there a lot of them split. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it's it just when they get dry, that skin toughens. And okay. when in, it, they get water, whether it's through your irrigation system or through rain, um, is going to make them is going to make them split like that. I I think you probably need to increase the frequency of your watering because if they're getting a more constant amount of water, uh, that's that skin on the tomato remains much more pliable. Uh, it's the wet dry cycle that is going to cause the worst the splitting. You're always going to have a little bit of it, but. Uh, with the sun goals, you get so many of them, you should get 90% of them unsplit. But uh, I'm going to increase yeah. the frequency of your watering a little bit. We're mostly just doing the drip irrigation now because we just don't have time to hand water all Oh, I know that, and it's not very pleasant to be out there in the – uh, there, there's not enough time in, right, <laughs> in the middle right, of the exactly. afternoon when you have time. It's not the time to be out there. But uh, right. um, I'd, be, okay. I'd be watering at least every other day. Do you hand water yours at all or just drip? Um, virtually a hundred percent drip and my drip system yeah. is on a controller sprinkler system controller. Right. So, right. uh, uh too, yeah. yeah, I will okay. be hand watering it and I'm late getting, you know, my fall tomatoes planted, but just got back from eight days in Atlanta and a few other little challenges in life, shall we say <laughs> water yeah, leak to sure. fix today at the nursery. So all those other little things that keep you from having time. So my, my hand watering is infrequent, but when I put up my new tomatoes, they will very definitely get hand watering uh, until they're right. up and established. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Our, um, our contender beans, they kind of paused about two, three weeks ago mm -hmm. and now they're just going bonkers. I mean, there's so many beans. It's like three or four times as many as we've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so I hope you got some uh, got somebody to give you a good back rub every now and then because that's the only thing wrong with bush beans is you spend a lot of time bent over picking them. Yeah, uh, um, now now we're having a problem. I had this system where I have little aluminum tags with the day of the week, uh -huh. and so as I pick each day, I put them in a bag and label them by what day they are. Uh huh. You know, because I end up with six bags in the different refrigerators and don't know how old they are. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds but, like you've got it figured out, though. Good but system. I can't find enough people to take them. The other thing, the our rattlesnake pole beans have always done pretty consistently for us, uh -huh. even through the summer. But this this year they're doing they're well. They, they like water, and yep. so they're doing great. We're getting a whole lot of the rattlesnake beans too. Good. And those those are like sweet, eating them raw. Oh. I mean, it's, they just taste really good raw. They're not bitter at all. Yeah, a few sun gold tomatoes, a few little beans, right, and, right. Uh, you know, even maybe even the cucumber that you just break in half and then nibble on there. There's a lot of uh, grazing to be done in the garden by a good gardener. Sounds like you're enjoying it. Yeah. Last thing, our Bella Georgia white peach, <clears throat> uh -huh. it's, it's just now ripening. 
and and most peaches ripen over like two to three week right. period or even longer. These things are going to all be gone in one week. Well, you that 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 also has to do with a peach that ripens in July or August. Your earlier oh, okay. ripening peaches, the ripening process is more extended because the temperatures aren't quite so extreme. Oh, so okay. that's any any of them, whether it's Bell of Georgia, whether it's Red Skin, whether it's any of the ones that typically ripen later in the summer, you're going to always have a much shorter picking period because because of the heat and uh, the influence oh, okay. that has on sugar development. That makes sense. Now they always have a <clears throat> a big problem where what it looks like is the moisture soaks in around the stem. Mm-hmm. So you you pick these peaches and they seem fine, and then all of a sudden they're just rotted around the around the pit. Yeah, there's uh, again that's kind of typical of late summer peaches. You better eat them, make some ice cream, or preserve them one way or another fairly quickly. Uh, easiest thing to do if you've got more peaches and less time, you can just put them in a heavy sugar syrup and uh, and freeze them in Ziploc bags. It's uh, um, pretty easy to do. Always use freezer. The bags mark freezer. A lot of people right, think that right, the bag mark freezer right. is a tougher bag. It's not, but the bags that are not marked freezer can give off some uh, chemicals you really don't want oh, okay. in your peaches. Uh, so that's okay. the reason you always use freezer bags. But uh, you don't necessarily have to spend a lot of time canning or boiling or doing a lot of things. Right, uh, right. Uh, they sure are good, just uh, in in effect, a heavy surface sir- syrup and frozen. We basically just just cut them up into pieces, and especially with all the bad ones, and cut the good off, stuff yeah. them in a ziploc, and eat, squeeze all the air out, and they're good for years. Oh yeah, in the freezer in that way. Well, just but, the people so, you share those with, tell them you can only have these if you'll take a bag of uh, beans as well, and be sure to eat them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so you don't know of any way to avoid this this inside getting the moisture in there. Then you can move to Georgia, where that peach was yeah. developed, and um, oh, okay. Yeah, weather's different. It's yeah. just Texas is a tough climate, and uh, yeah. especially in a year when we move from very comfortable temperatures to rather extreme temperatures, uh, the plants don't handle it any better than uh, than most people do. So you're you're looking at something that's environmental as much as anything else. Yeah, yeah, okay. It, it's kind of hard to it's sell them or anything because. It's hard to judge when they're going to do do that, when they're going to go bad. <laughs> Welcome to the world of gardening. Yeah, right, right. Okay. <laughs> Legalized gambling is what I call yeah. agriculture with worse odds. Right, right. Okay, thanks, Bob. Always a pleasure, Mark. Good to talk to you. Yeah. And thank Good you. Bye. All right, it's going to be Esperanza, Paul, Kim, and Thomas. Good morning, Esperanza. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. I'm uh, having a lovely morning over here in Atkins. Uh, it's a good thing to hear. It's going to be a hot afternoon, but the mornings and evenings, meh, pretty nice for the end of July. That's what I like. Nice and cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, got problems over here, Bob. I've got a Celeste fig, and uh, it's it's quite large. I had had some problems with it that you helped me out uh, last year because mm-hmm. one of the branches had frozen, and uh, right, right. I had to take it off. But anyway, um, the figs are about golf size. They're um, ripening up real pretty. They have a lot of figs on it. Some of them are small and green. But the ones that are uh, ripening, Bob, they have um, a little buzz, black buzz or something going in the umbilical on it. Right, right. I wanted to know what I could use to um, put on it so that 
I can get rid of that. That is, you know, and usually that's not a problem with Celeste because they produce a big drop of rosin that seals up. This little fruit weevil is what it is. Probably the best spray out there uh, is spinosad. And it, of course, is totally safe for you. It's not going to, you know, make the fruit inedible or anything. Uh, As I told an earlier caller, I would encourage you to add a little bit more mulch around it and probably water it a little bit more because that fig, that particular variety, Celeste is one of the group we usually call closed-end figs, which rarely gets that fruit weevil problem. And I think if you give the plant a little bit more moisture, because figs love being wet, they're probably the thirstiest. Uh, fruit tree we have but uh, it should get to where it's producing its own little rosin to seal up that blossom end on the fig so that you don't have to deal with this problem okay do i uh put the spinosad and how much uh how much spinosad do i put to the water follow the directions on the package most uh most of them are going to be about one to one and a half ounces per gallon but there are several different brands out there so just uh Get out your magnifying glass and read the instructions to get the exact amount. Okay. Um, do I do the the whole tree, the foliage, the bottom? The... I, I would try to just hit the figs. Uh, those little weevils don't really spend a lot of time on the foliage. And if your tree is such and if you have a sprayer that will allow you to do so, concentrate on actually hitting the figs where the fruit weevils are. If you're using a sprayer on the end of the hose, of course, it's not quite as easy. doesn't hurt getting it on the foliage. I always like to spray early morning or late evening just because any liquid can, you know, lead to little sunburn spots on the leaves. But uh, uh, you want to concentrate your spraying on the fruit as much as you possibly can. Wash the fruit before eating. But, again, this is not a toxic pesticide that's going to cause you harm. Okay, because there's a lot of butterflies and bees. And oh, yeah. Oh, everything, yeah. Everything. In. <laughs> well, and, and that's uh, the thing, too, especially if you can spray in the evening, uh, the bees and butterflies won't be as active and won't be as likely to be bothered by the spinosad. Okay. I have another question, Bob. I have a mes- a two mesquite trees that um, are by the street, and these trees have, like, a, v- a V-shape. Uh, they come to a V-shape, and uh, they're getting sap on there. What's going on? There is uh, sap around the V, or where where is this problem occurring? Uh, around the V. It and what kind of trees are they? A mesquite. Mesquite, yeah. And that is, it's a bacterial problem. Uh, it's called wet wood. And, you know, a lot of times it'll drip around. It's, it doesn't really seem to hurt the trees that much. It just makes kind of a gooey mess. I think right. spraying some hydrogen peroxide on there, you can use it straight out of the bottle or you can dilute it 50-50 with water. But I think probably the best thing you can use on there would be nothing more than hydrogen peroxide. That will clear it up to some extent. You know, hot, dry summer weather, if you walked out through a South Texas pasture, you're going to see this on a lot of trees. And uh, you're probably never going to be totally free of it. But uh, just simple hydrogen peroxide is about the best thing you can use to keep it under control. Okay. It also had, like, like mushrooms thing growing underneath, and I just... Uh... Now, that, that is a sign that mushrooms are on the tree or on the ground? 
they're close to the ground, but they're on the tree. Okay. That is a sign that that tree has had some damage. Uh, those are actually called shelf fungi, and they are decomposing some dead wood in that tree. So be sure the root flare is exposed. Something happened to damage that part of the tree, uh, you know, could have been from a line trimmer for somebody running into it with something or, you know, many other causes. But when you start seeing those shelf fungi on the tree, um, that tree's that tree's having some problems. And if this is a tree that would cause severe damage if it fell or was, you know, damaged by a storm, that's definitely a weaker part of the tree. Um, right. If this is a tree that might harm your home or something if it fell, I would get not a tree trimmer but a qualified arborist uh, to take a look at it and perhaps suggest that there's anything else you should do because uh, mesquite tree, you know, they're they're good old native trees, but they're not right. very nice if they crush your car or part of your house. Right, it's on a, it's close to the driveway, it's by the fence. Yeah, not near the house anywhere, but uh, well, well don't don't park it. under don't, don't park underneath on, it on my vehicle when I go by. Yeah, that's probably so, not going to happen. But don't park underneath it if there's a thunderstorm coming. That's right. To stay far away from there. Very good. Um, I have uh, a question about the color of the blue for the eaves for beach. The color of what now? The, the color that you said for blue. Oh, oh, uh, for blue uh, to keep the wasps away from your eaves. They call it haint. H-A-I-N-T, haint blue. But any light blue, any kind of sky blue color. Um, like the old-fashioned plumbago, that's that's the color you're looking for. I think there's well, at least, uh, I don't know whether it's Sherwin-Williams or which ones actually has a color they call haint, but uh, just that light sky blue, There, there's no exact formula. Any light blue will do it. Okay, Bob. That's it for me today. I should thank you. Have a nice day. You do the same, Esperanza. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay, let's talk to Paul. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. I got, a question of, I got a question about an oak tree. It, I don't know what it is, but it's got an acorn as big as a golf ball and okay. a leaf that's pretty long. It's called a bur oak, B-U-R. Oh, okay. The reason I'm asking is my neighbor has one, and I guess a squirrel planted one on my side. And I'm just wondering if it's worth, you know, keeping. If it's a, in the right place, it's certainly worth keeping. The bur oak is a long-lived tree. It is in the white oak group, which means it doesn't get oak wilt. Um, the first, no, probably three years, it's growing. You may see a little mildew on it. You may occasionally see some aphids on it. It's just kind of like a teenager with acne. It's something that's going to go away. But uh, that bur oak could live 100 years. It's an excellent shade tree. It's going to drop its leaves every fall. And uh, you're not going to be want to be underneath it when those big old acorns come crashing down. But I, I'll put it as... It's probably one of the top three oak trees for South Texas. Oh, good. That, yeah, that is good information. No, you do not want to be under there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Also, uh, what peach tree would be good out here in this, uh, southeast San Antonio, and how many do I need to get down and when? Well, if you're going to plant a peach, you need to plant two. Um, there is a variety. There's several good varieties. A very large peach, a very sweet peach called Sam Houston. Uh, would be a good peach to plant out there. Uh, there is a variety called La Feliciana. 
that would be a very good peach for you. There is a uh, hybrid of La Feliciana called John Fannick, like the nursery over there, John Fannick peach. Okay. Those probably be my top three peaches uh, for your area. Okay. Well, thank you, Bob. Appreciate it. You have a good evening. You do the same. Good to talk to you, Paul. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. All right. Straight back to the phone lines, and it is Kim's turn. Good morning, Kim. Good morning. Good morning. Um, How are you doing this morning? Uh, It's just a nice morning out there. Getting ready for a hot afternoon, but every day's a good day. Some of them just a little better than others. Oh, absolutely. I'm I'm actually sitting here standing about 70. Five or better enclosed on my plumeria, so much is <laughs> good here. They like to eat a lot better than we do, I think. Oh, uh, man, they're so fragrant, too. Oh, absolutely. You get out of the car, it's just amazing. Um, I'm actually calling about tomatoes. Okay. Um, I'm hoping I'm not too late because I was like thinking I need it. I was trying last weekend. I thought, oh, you know what? I have heard this show before. So <laughs> I'm not trying. Um, anyway. Um, my, I called around to my nurseries, and none of them are going to have tomatoes in until mid-August. Basically. Oh, that's terrible. No, that... Yeah, I know. It's crazy. Um, and they're, they're pretty they're good nurseries, Tom's Thumbs, Ma's Nursery, but they said mid-August or later. By then, I know, because this year, especially down here, I put my tomatoes in in mid-February, and I was picking tomatoes. Oh, yeah. And they were... I had a bumper crop this year, you, you know, early May, all through June, and then all of a sudden. You may you may just have to make a trip to the big city because I know Phoenix is well stocked. We're well stocked at Shades of Green. I um, wow. I, well, maybe Buchanan's might have them. And do what now? Maybe Buchanan's in Houston might have them. I would call first. Um, Buchanan's is sure a good nursery yeah. over there, but. Um, yeah, they they are out there. There's no excuse for a nursery not having them because the suppliers we buy from travel over a fairly large area. Um, I, August would not be too late for planting some of the cherries like Sun Gold and Sweet 100s. But if you're looking for slicing tomatoes, you've got to find them and get them in in about the next three weeks. That's OK. But here's my real question. So because I couldn't find any, um, I was getting ready to take mine out. They were just in July. They just looked horrible mm-hmm. um we just got really really hot right fast. and um so but the tips still had some nice tips on them so i heard you talk about being able to cut those off and and root them so what i did is i took about 10 from three of my plants and put them in perlite mm-hmm. well it, and i've watered them twice a day keeping the perlite making sure it stays moist because i mean it's really really hot down here so uh, it looks like they're, t- they're not turning brown. They all sell. Even some of them are getting some new growth. What I want to do is, what I want to know is, what do I do next? Well, I'm how long have how long have they been in the perlite? Ten days. Okay, lift up gently on you know one or more of the plants. If you feel resistance, if they don't just slide out of the perlite easily, they have started forming roots. And at this point, as soon as they do that, you can take them out, pot them up in uh, decent potting soil in a four-inch pot. You're going to leave them in that four-inch pot two or three weeks to really develop some good roots, and then you're going to put them out in the garden. Now, uh, you've probably done the right thing, but here's here's what you need to know. Indeterminate tomatoes, they root well, and they will give you a good crop of fall tomatoes. Determinate tomatoes... Um, they may root, but they're not going to produce well because the determinant basically produces a big fruit crop, and then you can't 
encourage it to produce more. So if you've got indeterminates, you're all set. If you've got semi-determinates, you'll probably do okay. But um, okay, it, I have wheat, Chelsea, Juliet, and Fourth of July because I tried doing the great big slicing tomatoes here last year, uh-huh. and even with good bird netting, um, yeah, yeah. They, um, you, you should be okay. I know the Juliets will do well for you. I'm not familiar with the uh, 4th of July, but they sound like they're all indeterminate, so they should do fine for you. But just, yeah, go ahead. As soon as they start, even if the roots are very small, as soon as they start rooting, pot them up in four-inch pots, give them about another two or three weeks, and then into the garden with them. Now, when they're in the four-inch pot, do they need full sun or partial shade, like I would give them at least uh, three or four hours of sun. I would give them sun in the morning, but a little protection from that uh, two to four afternoon sun. Okay. We were talking about the seedlings, and I was wondering if I should start them in a four-inch pot, or can I just start them directly in the ground? I would put them in a pot to get them started. Um, I always have a few seedlings sprout up from ones that I missed, but... uh, especially where you're dealing with the kind of heat and everything. I just want to give the plant a little bit of a head start. So uh, um, I actually start them in in what's called a cell tray. This got like 48 little kind of uh, openings in it where I can direct seed. Another great way to start uh, seeds like shishitos and even your tomatoes, uh, get one of these uh, whatever kind of plastic they are, egg cartons. Just punch a hole in the bottom of each one of those little cells that had an egg in it. Fill that with uh, soil, and you can get a real nice little transplant started in that without using as much soil. And I think you're a little more successful in that slightly smaller um, cubicle, so to speak, for it to start out in. Okay, perfect. And one more one more question, or actually it's kind of a dual um, I get I kind of set the alarm early and get up and spray my um, plants and everything with sea feet, seaweed uh-huh. to kind of help prevent spider mites and different things like that. Um, I'm curious. I heard, and I don't know if it's true or not. Does Epsom salt um, help prevent sunburns? I use Epsom no. salt for, for no. I don't think Epsom salt will really help with the heat. It helps with blossom end rot in tomatoes. It helps with flowering in some plants like right. uh, roses, but. I I don't think it's gonna. The only thing's gonna reduce your sunburn issues would be uh, some sort of barrier, like uh, you know, like one of the frost fabrics, like the insulate or actual shade cloth. Uh, and you don't want to get too much protection, or the have taken away the sun that the plants need. But uh, liquid seaweed, uh, again, I wouldn't use it when there's blistering sun out there, but the heat's not going to affect it at all. So you've got till 11 o'clock. You don't have to set your alarm and get up as early as I do uh, <laughs> just to spray your liquid I don't know. seaweed. I get up pretty early, right before that. Why does that sun coming up? Because I tell you what, bye. Yeah, well, it's it's morning sun's not an issue. It's just a hot afternoon sun I'd be concerned about. Oh, okay. So I I just I'd be safe and sorry because I'm talking about my scenarios, not necessarily my garden. And these leaves are huge, and one little thing stays on them, and the sun comes out. <laughs> you want you want to take care of the plumerias. Well, listen, you have a good Sunday, like and yes. call me when I can help. Okie dokie. Thanks. Thank you, Kim. <laughs> Bye. Okay, Thomas is next. Good morning, Thomas. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. On uh, Queen's Crown, when do they uh, bloom? They ought to be in bloom now. Uh, Queen's Crown should, at least the newer varieties, they should start blooming end of May, and they should bloom all the way up until freezing weather. 
Well, I don't know what's going on. I've got two of them, and they're in the sun. No, but uh, it is not. They're putting the leaves. They're healthy looking and everything. The vine is just old, no bloom. Well, I'd hit them with a little Hester Grow or a Spoma or liquid fish or, you know, just a good fertilizer, and um, they should be. They should be blooming in the very near future. Now, some of the old-fashioned varieties, you know, they didn't really start blooming until August or September. But I tell you, all these new ones out there, they ought to be—they ought to have a lot of flowers on them by now. Okay. Another thing, uh, pill bugs. Uh, when you put the <clears throat> the Sluggo Plus, that's the killer in there is said right? Correct. Well, why don't, why can't you spray them with spinosad and kill them? Now? Well, you can spray and you will kill the ones you hit, but for every yeah. pill bug you see on the surface, there are 25 of them hiding down underneath the grass or dead leaves or pots or whatever else, and uh, uh, it's just your Sluggo Plus is going to get 90% of them. Spraying would probably get 5% of them, so uh, you can certainly spray with spinosad, but for everyone you see, there are plenty more of them hiding around. The other thing you can always do, of course, is create a trap. Take a slick-sided jar, mason jar or something like that, bury it down in the ground with just the lip exposed, and you can put a little slice of apple or a piece of lettuce or anything like that, and they will crawl in and can't get out, and you can, you can control them by the hundreds that way. But uh, as far as a bait, the Sluggo Plus is the only one I recommend. The old uh, bug pellets, bug getta, and, you know, um, oh, gosh, what are they? They had two or three different names for it. But that stuff is so toxic, you know, a teaspoonful is enough to kill a small dog. So stay away yeah, from, that, yeah, yeah, don't use any of that. But the, yeah. the Sluggo Plus will work. Uh, liquid liquid spinosad will work, but you'll think it's not working because there's so many of them that come out after you spray. And it, it takes a good shot of it to kill them, but... Uh, you can also create that little trap and get rid of a lot of them too. Well, when when you plant a, a plant when it's still tender, it would get my experience of these little bitty ones is what you know is what they gather around oh, yeah. the stem there and, and uh, just chew it off. Yeah, they're just uh, and you know they love mountain mulch. <laughs> That's where they yeah, love to hang out. I tell you, it was kind of <laughs> kind of funny. I I have seen recently. I'd been seeing more and more of them inside of my greenhouse and saying, "Hey, you need to spray, get you know, get some of the Slogo Plus out." And then I noticed the past couple of days, I'm not seeing nearly as many. Well, I went in at five o'clock this morning before I left to come into town, and here sits this big old toad over by uh, my water hydrant and big old fat thing. And I thought, "Aha! You're the reason I'm not seeing so many pill bugs. Glad you glad you came in." So there are some natural controls out there, but having been a wet spring, there sure are a lot of pill bugs around. Hey, Bob, uh, I got a real nice looking snake. Okay. And uh, I look. <clears throat> It's, uh, I looked it up on the internet. I believe it's a Lenheimer's. Okay, that's our most common four, rat snake. Four foot long, and uh-huh. it's black with kind of like little specks. Well, little specks, if you, I don't know how comfortable you are with snakes. If you get up close to it, a uh, Lenheimer's rat snake, the scales are, they have a little bit of sort of a salmon orangey color around. Okay. And um, if it, if it has a lot of speckles, it's more likely a king snake, which is also an extremely good snake. 
But uh, four feet would be big for a king snake, but uh, uh, it's probably a Lindheimer's rat snake, and they're real good things to have around. Well, I've, I've told my, na- my neighbors on the side where I see the snake most of the time, mm-hmm. they're uh, okay with it. Good. I don't want, I'm afraid somebody's going to panic and kill it, you uh-huh. know. He's uh, uh, right here in the neighborhood. Yep. But they're doing so much construction over here, and... Uh, you know, they go on these lots and just flat. Oh, I know. It's terrible. It out, so yeah. they got to go somewhere. Well, I'm glad you're talking to your neighbors because uh, those guys are sure worth having around. And they're kind of foul-tempered. Uh, you know, many rat snakes actually make good pets for people that want a snake for a pet. But Lindheimer's is not one of the ones that tames very easily. So I would be real careful about handling it without some pretty good gloves on. Every now and then you find a really docile one. Um, I had one on my driveway crossing the driveway as I came home the other night. Very, very docile. I was nudging him around with my foot and he wasn't even, you know, showing any response whatsoever. But, uh, uh, my experience is the majority of them will happily bite you given the opportunity and they're not venomous or anything like that, but they, uh, they are something to just observe from a distance unless you know what you're doing. Don't fool with them. Well, I can remember when I was a kid. This was back in the forties, and we had a. I lived way out there on a on a ranch by by Yancey, between Yancey and Moore out there. Mm-hmm. And my grandfather, we had a big one out there. He must big old king snake. He must have been about seven foot long. Wow! And he always told me, "Leave that snake alone. Don't don't bother him. Don't mess with him. He's good." <laughs> well, king snakes eat rattlesnakes. And uh, that's one reason that ranchers love. Now, seven feet, I've never seen a seven-foot king snake, but I've seen yeah, I've seen plenty that. of five-footers. But down there, you also had indigo snakes, which will get eight or nine feet long, and they're that also big rattlesnake eaters. Yeah. yeah. That might have been. Well, I was a kid, you know. I might have been. <laughs> yeah, things look bigger then, and uh, unfortunately, our memories uh, tend to be not quite as good as they once were. Thomas, it's always good to hear from you. Have a great Sunday, and we'll talk again. Thanks for your time. Always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Bye. Bye. Okay, uh, Dana is next, and then it will be Linda and Beverly. Good morning, Dana. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. I have got a spider problem that i need some advice on okay um we have got a crawl space underneath the house where we store boxes Uh uh-huh and um it's pretty dry down there we have a dehumidifier um what would be the best way to treat for spiders and we're we're thinking there may be some brown recluse down there too yeah there almost certainly are they're they're all over the place um uh, spiders, of course, are arachnids. They're related to scorpions and things like that, and they are they are tough to kill. I would probably um, I probably would start with neem oil in EEM. Be sure it's fresh. Neem loses its potency after about six months after it's been opened. But I think neem is probably going to be uh, one of your best spider controllers down there. Um, you can also uh, spray with uh, a dilute ammonia. That's not going to do a whole lot to the spiders, but it dissolves their web, and it reduces their ability to catch things to eat. So um, uh, I, I probably would would start with neem, and I think you're going to find that's going to do the job for you. I wish there okay. was there, – there used to be a product out there called Bioganic, which was a combination of herbal oils 
and that was very good against spiders, but uh, I haven't, you know, it hadn't been on the market in two or three years. But uh, anything that has natural herbal oils in it would be worth trying. Nature's Creation makes a product they call uh, Mound Drench. It's designed for killing ants, but uh, pretty high in rosemary oil, and uh, I think it has some thyme oil in it. So that would be another very pleasant-smelling one that you could spray uh, both of these things, you really need it to come in contact with the spiders. But I, I would say either the mound drench or the neem would both be uh, should be effective in spider control. Okay, um, I'm trying to think how we would actually apply that. Would we go like around the perimeter, or do we just have to like spray everything? Uh, is this crawl space under your home or where? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, you know, I would probably be using a pump up sprayer, and there's very little to do other than um, actually get down there and spray. It's, uh, yeah. Uh, your spiders that are living underneath are, you know, unfortunately, we all have roaches and crickets and things that live in the dark underneath their homes and spiders are not something other than other bigger ones like tarantulas which really aren't an issue but they don't come out at night to forage or anything they're they're pretty much not going to be leaving the crawl space under your home so if you're real concerned about them you're probably going to have to get under there one way or another to actually do your spraying the nice thing about both of these sprays is that they're not harmful to you but uh uh, other than that, it would just be leave them alone and be sure that you've sealed up any uh, cracks or what we call penetrations uh, that where they could move from the from the crawl space under your home, you know, up into your home itself. Uh, um, right. I, I I'm not into you know fumigation, and I don't know that it would be that effective anyway. But um, I, I would get all you can just by spraying, and if you don't want to actually get down underneath the home spray around uh the foundation and any openings under or around the uh you know the crawl space you don't really have a foundation with uh pier and beam home but spray everywhere you yeah. can and you'll knock their numbers down if not totally eliminate them okay is diatomaceous earth anything that would be helpful not really because these spiders no. spend very little time on the ground uh, if you got it on them kind of like scorpions and things like that, yes, it would get in their joints because they do have something of a harder exoskeleton. But uh, where it's really effective at scorpions that are virtually always down near ground level, these spiders rarely ever get down on the ground, so probably not going to be very effective. Okay. So then um, with the spraying, do we spray like the floor? The It's, a, it's kind of a tall crawl space. Mm-hmm. Um, like the the walls of it, do we spray? Like I would spray anywhere you see spider webs. Floor? I would say spray anywhere you see spider webs. The floor joist and up in that, you're going to have more of them up there than you are down on the ground. But uh, I just you know be kind of be kind of looking around. If it's dark underneath there and you wear a headlamp or something, a lot of them their eyes actually glow. But uh, <laughs> it can be real, real spooky outside sometimes in yeah. the evenings if you're. And I wear a headlamp because I'm a little more concerned about some uh, serpents like rattlesnakes and all that we do would come in contact with. But um, I would just spray anywhere you see webs. I concentrate on the area, you know, where your floor joists are and things like that, and just just be as thorough as you can. Okay. And should we use a like a respirator when we're spraying? 
would wear a respirator, but not because of the spray, uh, but because of the dust. Uh, there are, and I'm not a doctor by any means, but there are some different things that can be in the soils, mycoplasma type things that could cause you respiratory distress, but I'm more concerned about your breathing the dust underneath the home than about the spray. So yeah, I'm pretty much wearing a respirator when I'm down in the crawl space under my 100-year-old home, you know, whether I'm, I'm not a respirator, but a good quality dust mask. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah I, I think that'd be a good idea anytime you're you're down underneath your home, whether you're spraying or not. Yeah. Okay. Great. All right. We'll give it a try. Thanks a lot, Bob. You're sure welcome. My pleasure, Dana. Thank you. All right. To gardening, and it is Linda's turn. Good morning, Linda. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I started an avocado tree from seed okay. in a pot. Uh, it's about 15 inches tall. Yesterday, I put it in the dirt. And out, my question was, oh, it gets dappled, all dappled, except for maybe an hour of full in the afternoon. Okay. Do you and still have place, it inside, or is it outside now? It's, it's in the ground. Okay. I planted it yesterday. Okay. Uh, my question was, um, how long, how fast do they grow? They'll grow pretty quickly, but they mature pretty slowly. You're probably looking at seven or eight years before that tree is going to be mature enough to produce fruit. Uh, your problem with, um, uh, and this was a seed from an avocado that you just got at the grocery store? Yes. Unfortunately, those are not cold hardy. Uh, there are some varieties of avocados. We group them together and call them Mexican avocados. Uh, but there are varieties like Opal and Joy and several different ones that will tolerate uh, some freezing weather, but your Haas or Calavo or whatever you got at the grocery store will be damaged anytime the temperature gets anywhere close to freezing or anytime we have frost. So uh, not to say that you can't grow it. There was one in downtown San Antonio down at the old uh, um, Ursuline Academy that was probably 20 feet tall, and it bore avocados regularly, but it was in a very protected area. So uh, you can certainly grow it. You'll need to fertilize regularly. It's going to make a nice, good-sized tree, but uh, you're going to have to give it some winter protection most years uh, or it will freeze and die. Okay, what kind of fertilizer? Uh, the same thing you put on anything else. If you're using a liquid, you can use one of the Medina products like Has to Grow or their liquid fish. Uh, Espoma has a good liquid. Uh, Fox Farms under their Happy Frog label has a couple of good uh, liquids. Any good organic fertilizer. And even in the ground, I'd be feeding it every two or three weeks for best results. Okay. Um, when it gets cold. Mm-hmm. What kind of protection would I need? <laughs> That's all going to depend on how cold it gets. If yeah. it, uh, you know, 28 degrees, you can simply cover it. I like a, uh, a cloth material that is called just the letter N, insulate, and that'll take things down into the mid to low 20s. Gets colder than that, you're going to have to wrap it more heavily or uh, sometimes you wrap it up and then put a big light bulb or some heat source inside. Oh, yeah. If it gets really cold, you're going to have to build a little greenhouse over it. And I've seen five degrees in San Antonio, and I've seen years when we only had one freeze the entire winter. And uh, 
So uh, the weatherman obviously can't predict the weather, so you and I are even further behind. You just have to be prepared, and I would be, anytime they're talking 40 degrees or below, knowing the tendency of the weather people to be wrong, uh, I would plan on protecting it. But most winters, simply covering it with uh, insulate or one of the other good roll cover fabrics is going to be all you need. Got it. Okay. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Good question. Thanks for the call. Okay, let's see here. Next up is going to be Beverly. Good morning, Beverly. Good morning. Good morning. Let's see. What I'm calling you about, we have two fig trees out in the back, and they're uh, they're over 10 years old, I know, and they're real big. And for some reason this year and the first time it ever happened, all the leaves fell off. We have the fruit on it, but this was after the rain, and then it kind of got dry. Mm-hmm. And so... I was wondering what happened. Why is the leaves falling off? Do they turn yellow and fall off? Yeah. Yeah. Let me let you talk to my husband. Okay. Oh, oh, he won't talk. He's the one that's telling me to call you. Okay. Yeah, well, somewhat. tell him the big chicken. Um, yeah, it's, at some point, it got dry. Um, you know, we had a long period there where we were getting yeah. lots of very light rains, and it all—it seemed like things were wet. But that fig wants a thorough, deep soaking on a regular basis, and if it dries out even one time, it'll drop. The leaves will yellow and drop, but then they come right back as long as they don't stay dry for too long. So uh, we just—we had a period when it seemed like it was wet because we were getting rain. I know my rain gauge—I had about four or five one hundredths in it every day. And things were muddy on the surface. It was just too dry down on the ground where the fig's roots are. So it's coming back now. But if we go for more than a week without at least an inch of rain, you need to be sure you water it to keep it healthy and keep those figs uh, uh, developing properly. Okay. And then another thing I heard, is it important to water the leaves too or just just the roots? No, you do not need to water the leaves at all. uh, But you need to water deeply. What I always tell people is there's no such thing as too much water, but there is too often. So when you water it, really, really, really soak it, and then when that soil's dry on the surface, it's time to do it again. If you want to put uh, a mulch, and it can be something as simple as your grass clippings and leaves you raked up last year, but if you put a couple of inches of mulch on top of the ground around, it will help conserve the moisture, and you won't have to water as often. Okay, well, I will do that. Okay, one other thing. Sometimes when I water the grass, I don't see mounds, but ants get on my feet and bites me. Mm-hmm. And so what would you use? <laughs> there, Yeah, they are fire, fire ants, and there is a bait that is safe for people and pets, but it is called Come and Get It. It's under okay. the Fertilome label. You put it out. Since you don't know where the mounds are, you just kind of take a handful and scatter it around. Uh, Do it either early morning or late evening. Don't do it in the hot part of the afternoon. But the ants pick it up. They take it back to their colony, wherever that's located. They feed it to the queen, and as the saying goes, everybody dies. Uh, it's it's pretty effective, and uh, it's what we what we use when we don't know where the mound is. If we find the mound, we can drench it and kill them instantly. The come and get it takes two or three days, but um, you know a small bag of it goes a long way, just kind of scattered around the yard, and within three or four days, you should not be having any more ant problems. Oh well, I really. Thank you for the information. It's what <laughs> I'm I here for. Call me anytime I can help, Beverly. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. 
All right, let's get back to gardening, and nothing's changed up there. It's going to be Harry and Elaine and Madeline and Jan. Good morning, Harry. Good morning, sir. Morning. Um, I picked up a jug of this stuff. It's called Ortho Ground Clear, okay. and it's supposed to be organic. I was wondering, it has ammonium neonate as the prime ingredient. Have you got any reviews on that? Mm, I'm afraid that's a new one on me. Uh, does it have an OMRI seal on it? Does it say certified organic or OMRI? Anywhere on the... One second, if I don't drop you, I'll look at it. <laughs> All right. Because I'm finding some things, they put organic in the name, but it's in the name only. It's not really uh, something that I would choose to use. And, and yeah, I... does it. It does have an armory label on it. Okay. Then it's it's going to be, it is going to be organic. It's not something that I have ex, that I have any experience with. So I would start with it in a small area. What is it you're trying to control? What kind of weeds? It's, it's just general weed. It's supposed to be organic weed killer. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, what, what are you trying to kill? What are you going to use it on? Just the, those... We tall, ugly weeds. Okay. Um, it, be aware that it is almost certainly non-selective. You will have to keep it off of, uh, you know, things that you want to protect, your good long grass and things. The other thing I will always caution you about is when we get hot and dry, and we are hot and dry, many weeds kind of shut down, and none of the weed killers work real well on them. So, what I would suggest that you do is water the areas where you're fighting the weeds, give things a couple of days to green up a little bit, and then get out and use your weed killer. I think you'll find it to be uh, much more effective. I'll try to check it out. That, that's just not an ammonium ammonia product that I am familiar with. Um, I will tell you, I very definitely would use it in the cool part of the day. But I think if you want to get the maximum benefit out of it, water first, give things a couple of days to kind of rehydrate, and then any weed killer is going to work a lot better because the plants, they just go into sort of a shutdown, very resistant mode, and that's kind of a waste of time to spray with a lot of things when we are in a real hot and dry period. Right. Okay. Great. I'll, I'll try it out. And report and, um, back to me. I'd love to know how it works for you. Uh, absolutely. How come the price of orange oil has skyrocketed? Because of uh, orange uh, oil is actually scre- uh, created by squeezing it out of the uh, uh, out of the skin, out of the rind of the orange, and the orange crops have gone down. There are several parts of the world that. Uh, um, that the oranges are just simply not growing as many as they were. And, uh, it's, I think it's in higher demand. Stuart Frankie was telling me now to get a tanker load of orange oil. I think it cost him like $90,000 or something like that. He said the price has pretty much gone more than double on him in oh, the, Oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. We and, get and, it down here in Divine at Morales. Yeah. It was like $12 a quart. Yeah, and they don't carry it anymore, and it's hard to find anybody that even carries anything, Medina. And the closest place I could find was a, a nursery 
close by is twenty seven fifty for a quart. Well, you're still getting a pretty good price because it's probably going to be a little higher than that next time. But you tell Fred Morales, I said to put it back on the shelf. It's still a great product, <laughs> but it's it's not that he's gouging you or that Medina's gouging you. But uh, yeah, I had this talk for that same reason with uh, uh, Stuart Frankie, and he said the one thing that we have done to make it better is that they've started putting it up in pint bottles as well as quarts. So if you only need a small amount of it, you don't have to buy that full quart. Of course, it's useful for so many different things. I still think quart's a good buy. But, uh, yeah, it's just the world price on orange oil, or delimonene as it's chemically called, um, has skyrocketed over about the past 18 months. All right. All right. Thank you very much. Always good questions, Harry. Always good to hear from you. Have a great weekend. Thank Thank you, you, sir. Thank you. Bye. All right, uh, Elaine is up next. Good morning, Elaine. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I have a Gerber daisy that had, the leaves are covered in white okay. something or other. Yeah, powdery what mildew. Have I got? You've got powdery okay. mildew. Um, I attack it by? You can attack it uh, by, oh, by soaking a little cornmeal in water and spraying it on. You can attack it um, a little bit of garlic, uh, just a liquid garlic spray will help uh, keep it from ever occurring in the first place. And uh, any of your, there there are two or three natural fungicides out there. Uh, There's one called Serenade, I think. But uh, it's just some Gerber daisies do in the summer months. Uh, Are these in pots or are they in the ground? It's in a pot, and okay. it's, it's like four years old. Yeah. It just keeps on going. Watch your watering carefully. They're a little easier to maintain in the ground. But uh, uh, the thing that I would recommend, first of all, is just make your own natural fungicide, soaking uh, some whole ground cornmeal in water overnight, and then just use that to drench or spray the foliage. And be sure you're fertilizing pretty regularly, too. And like I say, don't keep them too wet. They actually... Um, they're, they're very drought tolerant. They're less tolerant of drought in a pot than they are in the ground. I always think about my business partner when she lived in town, had a big bed of them when she moved to the country. I happened to be driving by her old house a few months later. Uh, the grass was turning brown and dying. The shrubs were shriveling around the house and the Gerber daisies were an absolute full bloom looking beautiful out there. So, um, be, don't give it, don't over care for them, so to speak. They like it, uh, a little bit on the dry side, just not to the point of drooping, but getting rid of the mildew, uh, feed them to encourage them to put on some new foliage spray with some liquid garlic every couple of weeks to keep that new foliage free of the powdery mildew. And uh, this too will pass. Your Gerber should survive and do fine. Okay. Thank you very much. You're sure welcome. Thank you for the phone call. Ah, checking the time. It's Madeline, Jan, and James. And Madeline's first. Good morning, Madeline. Oops, I think I hit the wrong one right there. Let me do that. Good morning, Madeline. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. I'm getting grass burrs in an area that I've never had them before. It's it's just the side of the road that I drive up to the house, mm-hmm. but I don't want them there. And I've heard you talk about maybe fertilizing that area to get rid of them. Actually, the best thing you could do this fall is put a thin layer of compost over it. Anything too big of an area to, to do that. Okay, do some compost tea then. Um, you know, you can, you can make a, a small amount of... Uh, uh, compost will give you a large amount of compost. I think it's the humic acids that serve as a 
you know, as a natural pre-emergent. Now, fertilizing is a good idea, but the way fertilizing works is simply encouraging your good whatever kind of grass, native or whatever kind of grass is there, so that it simply chokes them out. And uh, over a period of a year or two, you should, if the weather cooperates, if we get reasonable rainfall, um, you know, grass birds are one of the weakest grasses out there, and they will be dominated by almost anything else. But uh, if there if there are limited areas where it's more important uh, that you get rid of them, where you can, about a quarter to a half inch of compost over those areas, in my experience, has just almost totally eliminated them uh, with a single fall application. But anywhere else, uh, compost tea if you can. Fertilizer is a great idea, but fertilizer is going to take a little bit longer to produce results. Uh, the seeds that fall now, if I mow them and I mow those seeds off, will those come up this year yet, or they'll wait till next year? Is it going to rain? Okay. If it gets if they get more moisture, that's a problem with the blasted things. We we call them the pain in the grass. Um, they can sprout anywhere from May till uh, or from March rather till probably September and still produce more burrs. And uh, the so-called pre-emergence, of course, don't really kill seeds. They they hopefully get them as they sprout. But, uh, yeah, you can mow them down low, but uh, it just is going to depend on whether they may sprout this fall or they may sprout next spring. And in any case, they are not welcome. Okay. And if I put fertilizer, what kind? Any good organic product. Medina makes, of course, one of the most uh, readily available ones called Growing Green. I'm talking about a big area, Bob. And could I get by with just a, a cheap fertilizer? I mean, rather than organic? Well, organic is as cheap as anything else. Uh, if you, uh, where whereabouts uh, are you living, Madeline? I'm living in Lavaca County. Okay. See if you can find this Viatrack that they're uh, doing a little more advertising now. I know they carry it up in uh, Divine in several places. I know Morales carries it, but a lot of feed stores are carrying it now. And uh, nice thing about Morales is he will actually sell it to you in a spreader. And you simply uh, hook it up to whatever uh, appropriate vehicle you have, uh, put it out, and take the empty spreader back to them. Uh, and this is this is buying it by the ton, and it sounds like you've got that kind of area. But look for Viatrack. It's going to be uh, um, as cheap as ammonium sulfate and do a whole lot better job for you. All right. Thank you. You're sure welcome. I appreciate the call. Good luck with fighting the... Oh, I wish the things we usually call them, I can't say on the air, but I I feel the same way about the grass verse that you do. All right, back to gardening. And uh, first up is Jan. Good morning, Jan. Morning, Bob. Morning. I have an issue with my desert rose. Okay. Um, It's been in the family probably about 12 years, and it's about four or five feet tall. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know how at the base they have that bulbous right. root thing that sticks up? Well, one of them got all smushy, and, um, of course, that part died. So now there's a big hole in the base. Okay. So I was wondering what I could do about that that hole. It's kind of fibrous and dry. Yeah. But the plant still has some leaves, and it's not dead. Mm-hmm. What what you have on that? Well, there's no reason to do anything about the hole. If it is dried, if it is sealed over, or the plant 
botanists call this uh, compartmentalization. Uh, I wish uh, that we had talked when you first started getting that softer, probably was a bacterial infection of some sort, and believe it or not, there it's controlled with cinnamon, of all things. Uh, at this point, there's not really a whole lot to do. Be certain that, you know, it's not a spot that will hold water or anything like that, but um, these things are, you know, come out of uh, some of the parts of, of Africa with very ex- climate extremes, uh, but where it's, you know, very warm very alternately wet and dry, so uh, uh, I'm not going to really tell you to do anything different except protect it from chilly weather. Uh, when I see the bacteria rot starting, it's usually because they got a little too cool sometime in the fall before they came inside. But, yeah, uh, probably was. I had it in the garage, and then yeah. I decided the garage was pretty cold. Well, yeah, that's what happened, but it's just kind of like uh, every now and then you get a little problem with your skin that doesn't look too good, but short of plastic surgery, there's not a lot you can do about it. That's kind of the way it is with your desert roads. It's just a battle scar for it and not anything you need to do except uh, keep it a little bit warmer next winter. All right. Um, the other thing is, like, I know that I have plumerias and they haven't been blooming, so I figured maybe they were in two shady of a, of a spot mm-hmm. so i moved them out now they're sunburnt <laughs> well it's you know kind of kind of like people or anything else you need to do that move gradually you need to not go from really pretty shady to really really sunny it's kind of like building up a tan although it's a totally different process but um right. again it's just cosmetic the new leaves that come out are going to be adapted to the hotter, brighter sun, and it's not going to affect the flowering. You very definitely will get more flowers by having them out in the sun. But uh, just like if you get a if you get a sunburn, new skin will eventually replace it, and your plumerias, new leaves will replace the sunburn ones. But there's not a lot we can do about it. I would not cut them off unless they are just totally scorched, because if there's a little bit of healthy green tissue in the leaves it's still helping the plant absorb the energy it needs to make new leaves so at this point just say lesson learned and move along right yeah my mom and i always discuss well when it says full sun does that mean texas full and sun? the answer is no but plumerias will take texas full sun but they if they've been in the shade they sure need to be moved out gradually Okay. If I wanted to plant some of that wild garlic, would I plant the cloves that are in the ground? You can plant either that or you can plant the little bubblets that form up on top of the uh, of the flower spikes. Uh, the wild garlic will reproduce and grow very well either way. Okay. All right. Well, you have a rest of a good day. You do the same. It's good to talk to you. Thank you for your help. <laughs> Thank you, Jan. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye. All right. Next up is James. Good morning, James. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Why am I on hold here? I'm watching my dog. He's trailing something through the thicket there. It's probably a cottontail. Anyway, <laughs> it's, it's entertaining, cheap entertainment. Anyway. You know, anybody has pets sure doesn't need the comedy channel. Right. Hey, listen, uh, before I ask my question real quick, from a previous caller, rise on hold, I found a product called EcoSmart uh-huh. uh, from EcoSmart Spider Blaster, and it's... Uh, 
active ingredient is rosemary oil, and yep. it says it kills by contact. I don't, I don't know if it works. I was just throwing that out there. Well, it's good. The EcoSmart products are are good products, and they're they're what a lot of your organic exterminators use. They're just hard to find. I don't know anybody that keeps them on the shelves. You probably have to buy them online. But uh, I appreciate you letting me know. I didn't know about that. Did not know about that particular one, but. Uh, um, it certainly is safe to use following the directions. Good stuff. Yeah, this is this is from a vendor online. I found it. Yeah. Anyway, what I was calling about uh, last weekend at, at our local grocery store, I saw something, and I'm probably going to get some more today, um, called uh, Cherry Plum. And we really, really like them, and it's from a grower out of California, but I've been saving the pits. Uh, uh, <laughs> I can talk to you. It's something that might grow here, or uh, yeah, you, I, if you're planning to move to California, I'd say it's a possibility. But but two <laughs> two problems with it. Um, and now, if it is indeed, if it is mostly plum blood, it um, there's a chance that it will do well here. Plums are not long lived, but. Uh, um, I, I, I would rather that you go online and try to find a tree if you want to experiment, because the problem with your stone fruits, be it peaches or plums, is that the maturing period is five is six to seven years on a tree that's probably going to live 10 to 12. And so even if it does grow from a seed, even if it is capable of producing here, it's a long, long wait for it. And I'd rather spend a few dollars and uh, get a grafted tree. Because, see, a grafted tree, it doesn't have to wait that period. Even if it's a very small tree, the grafted wood had already matured. And maturity has nothing to do with size. It has to do with uh, physiological age. So uh, if you want to try to grow a cherry plum, see if you can find even a small grafted tree online um, because it's just going to be endlessly frustrating without any guarantee of a good result to try to grow them from seed. Okay, that's why I was calling. I didn't know if it would be worth my time and effort. (laughs) Hey, I want you to do it and tell me if it works out because I want want some myself. That's a super sweet little plum. Uh, Oh, yeah, I've never seen them before. Um, Yeah, there are a lot of things that are just not available in big quantities and they sell everything that they can grow locally. And, uh, it's like some of the things, uh, if you ever have the pleasure to spend a little time in Colorado or some of these places, the farmer's markets they have up there, you'll see things that you'll never see anywhere else. And, uh, they just, uh, they're just not in mass production. Um, so, who knows? Maybe somebody's producing these things in enough quantity that we will see a little bit more of them. But if you think they're good from HEB, they're going to be a whole lot better if you are able to grow them. Because a plum, a true plum, is uh, does not ripen after it is picked. It gets softer, but the flavor doesn't improve. Now, pears and apples, yeah, they ripen after they're picked. It's called climateric versus non-climateric. But uh, plums just get softer. So if you're able to actually find these tree ripened, uh, they're going to be even better. Okay, I understand. I, I might just put them in some cups and just see if they sprout. And <laughs> nothing to lose, right? Again. Yeah, nothing but a little bit of time and uh, uh, <laughs> go for it. I look forward to hearing from you. But if you have an opportunity or, or if you you know ever happen to be out in that part of the country, uh, in uh, the fall months, and you can manage to collect a little bit of graft wood. You put it in refrigeration until spring, and then graft it onto uh, 
oh, shoot, grafted onto one of the little seedling trees that you're trying to grow, you'll bypass that long wait for production. All right, sounds good. Hey, I appreciate it. Always, always. a pleasure, James. Thank you, sir. Thank you. <laughs> Goodbye. Uh-huh. Well, every line's taken, so don't dial right this second. <laughs> we'll have one available as soon as we get through talking to Rees. It still looks like Rees, Allen, Mike, and Mary in that order. Good morning, Rees. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Yeah, my question is about crepe myrtles. Okay. And how much water do they need? I have an irrigation system at home, mm-hmm. but is that water enough for... If you let it run long enough. Um, crepe myrtles are very drought-tolerant. But if you want them to stay healthy, pretty, and bloom well, they need a good thorough soaking at least every couple of weeks. And that may mean letting your irrigation system run as long as two hours. So it's up to you. If everything on that zone of the system needs that kind of deep watering, then that's sure the easiest way to do it. Uh, If your grape myrtles are thirstier than some of the other things, then you can simply turn that hose on slowly, let it run at the base of them for an extended period of time. But uh, grape myrtles are deep-rooted, so... Uh, it need they need a whole lot longer soaking than you would give to even your turf grass. So, great question. Uh, they they will get by with just regular irrigation watering, but if and I know you want the very best, you don't want them to just get by. You want them to stay beautiful. So every couple of weeks they're going to need a thorough deep soaking one way or another. Okay. The other question was about hydrogen peroxide. Yes. I fail to understand what purpose does it serve in the garden and when to use it. Well, in the garden, it does two or three things. It, uh, um, in heavy clay soils, it does what we call flocculating the soil, F-L-O-C. I don't know if I can spell it or not, but um, it is a good thing to use when you're planting uh, just to spray the hole with it. But it also, uh, it is antiviral. And, you know, we sometimes get virus issues on the tomatoes. If you catch it early, it will stop that. We sometimes get a mosaic virus and things like the squash where the fruits develop normally, but they're oddly colored. And hydrogen peroxide seems to be one of the most effective virus killers we have. And it's also, um, you know, anti microbial it will work against various bacterial and fungal infections as well so it's just a really good disinfectant you might say right in in strong concentrations it also will uh kill algae in a fish pond or you know it it cleans up some of these really hard to kill red algaes and things that people occasionally get in their swimming pools so those are those are a few of the general uses for hydrogen peroxide it's it's uh it's kind of a just a a good first aid remedy as it were but uh it also works directly against things like viruses and it does work to help soften the soil yeah because i notice every time i get a chigger bite Mm -hmm. i just put some uh, hydrogen peroxide on a ball of cotton <laughs> and dab it, and it's gone. You know? Well, it's a, a in, you know, I am fairly fair-skinned and getting yeah. to an age where my dermatologist calls it the sins of our youth, and when he has to cut something off or burn something off, he tells me, now, don't fool with those antibacterial ointments. Just just get some hydrogen peroxide and clean it a couple of times yeah, a day, and that's all you need to do. Absolutely right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and my last question is about the roaches. I called you two weeks ago, and you said to use boric acid and sugar. Yes. 
Do you make a paste of it? Or no, no. It? Leave it. Leave it dry. The roaches okay, will feed it. on it, and the boric acid uh, will kill them. I, you know, put it in places out of sight, like down in cabinets or you know under the refrigerator or wherever I have a problem with them, uh, and it's normally pretty effective. Yeah, I mostly have it in the garage. It's not in oh, yeah. the house. Yeah, no. And my husband bought something. It says Rochaway boric acid. Is that good? Sure. Probably a little more expensive. Boric acid at the grocery store is really cheap. But uh, <laughs> you, you can always put a fancy name on something and charge more for it. So oh, yeah. if you've got it, use it. But I, I think you can do your own roach way for uh, a little bit less money if you choose. Yes, Bob. Thank you so much for all that valuable information, Bob. We really appreciate your show. Well, it's a pleasure visiting with you always, Reese. And we'll talk again, and I will move along and talk to Alan next. Good morning, Alan. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Bob, I have a weeping mulberry that okay. I got from y'all, and it's got what I guess would be called a sucker coming up about, you know, six inches from the base. Uh-huh. And it's going up through the middle of the tree, and it grows six inches a day. It, we it, we call really that a – we cool. call we call that a water sprout. It happens on bougainvilleas. It happens on many trees. Lop it off as close to the base as you can. Really? Yeah. It's kind of looking kind of neat. So. <laughs> well, if you like it, leave it. But it's uh, it's taking energy that your tree could be putting into those more unusually configured branches and things like that. So, uh, uh, I mean, it's it, there. It's not mandatory, but you bought that weeping mulberry to have an unusually shaped tree. <laughs> And so whether you cut it or leave it uh, is totally up to you. But it it will be your your mulberry will weep more if you take out that water sprout. Okay. It's kind of looks like Jack and the Beanstalk. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, And one other question. I bought a pallet of uh, Zeon zoysia grass. Yes, sir. Uh, Would you fertilize it right away? Organically, absolutely. In fact, I frequently would put organic fertilizer down before I laid the grass. Uh, you see, the, your, it, it all is the form that the nitrogen is in, and so many of the synthetic fertilizers that you know have been used in the past, and they always have a warning that says, uh, do not use uh, until things are well-rooted. It's because those products stimulate an instant water uptake, and new grass without any roots uh, will be burned by those things. The organic products are naturally slow release. They do not stimulate that immediate water uptake, and you can use them the day before you plant your new grass or the day after you plant your new grass, and it would be very good for your new Zeon to have the nutrients. So, yeah, I would very definitely feed it, but I sure would stick to a good organic product from right. you know medina maestro nature's creation fox farms any of those uh will be just fine to yeah. use well that's good to know to put it down first i kind of, kind of crossed my mind i said well i don't know if i should do that or not but well just if you're telling if you're telling your friends about it just be sure that they understand the meaning of the word organic <laughs> i i just am really amazed by some people who just don't get it shall we say but uh you you would burn things up to use uh scots or any of the synthetic uh fertilizers to put them down beforehand but uh good organics you're just going to have the nicest grass you've ever had all right great thank you very much have a good day you do the same sir always a pleasure 
Okay, uh, Mike, Mary, and Paul in that order. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. Uh, good morning to you, Bob. I, I missed you last week in the... Uh, I uh, listened to the recording, but I did miss you last week. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. It's that little thing we do called the America's Mart Gift Mart, and that's uh, why we have so many beautiful things at the nursery. But you you got to go lay hands on them. You can't look at a picture in a catalog. And so that's that's something we do over in Atlanta. And um, I sure is glad to, sure I'm glad to be back home. I don't really consider that part of the civilized universe. <laughs> but it's uh, it's you know it, it the market's great. Uh, Atlanta has a fantastic rapid transit system, but you know there's nowhere like home. That's correct, Bob. Just a little while ago, you told the lady that was having trouble with fire ants mm-hmm. to use something called "Come and Get It" by Fertilome. Yeah, if you don't uh, know where the mound is, spread it out. Right. Well, I was watering just a little while ago, and I've got fire ants coming up. They were not there yesterday, I swear. Mm-hmm. But I have a brick type uh, sidewalk and patio. Okay. And uh, I watered some plants that's right near there, and these fire ants just come out like foam. Uh, uh, out of the out of the brick area or out of the pots? No, out of the brick area, out uh-huh. between the seams that are kind of broken and yep. along the edge of it. Yep. What I'm going to do in that kind of area, Mike, I'm either going to make my own ant killer with orange oil and water, about two ounces to a gallon of water, just poured over the area, or um, I like a Nature's Creation product, which is called Mound Drench. It's a rosemary oil product, uh, quite pleasant smelling, but it's almost instant death. And what I find, and and I do fight the same thing in uh, flagstone walkways and all periodically, is you can't go out with a whole watering can full and just dump it all on. I stand there, I water, uh, let it soak in a little bit, pour a little bit more on. I'm just trying to soak that area as best I can. And it's pretty much instant death to the ants. So, yeah, in that kind of area, when I know where the colony is, I'm going to use a a drench just because it's much faster working. Now, you could wait until the cool of the evening. You could spread some come and get it around. The ants will find it. They will carry it down in, and um, it it will eventually eliminate it. But if I know where the mound is, I just want them dead now, not, not three days from now. So about two ounces of orange oil to a gallon of water? Yes, sir. And you say drench it or just little at a time well you need to soak the area thoroughly and where you're where you have flagstone or brick you're going to have to pour it on slowly to really get good penetration so um the place that i've i've fought this recently was a couple of places inside my greenhouse where i have a brick floor and i just you know i leave my watering can with the mix there in it i'll pour it on go off and do something for five minutes come back pour a little bit more on and just, you know, spend the time while I'm in there working in the greenhouse anyway. And it may be an hour before I have fully emptied that watering can, but I normally get the totally wipe them out the first time around. Okay, and how about that mound drench you you mentioned? Uh, same way, exactly. Okay. I just use whichever one I have handy. Well, I was thinking about using maybe a... 50 gallons of gasoline and a few sticks of dynamite. <laughs> no, I won't be talking to you again because you'll be uh, gardening in a different land, shall we say. But uh, I've known people who got frustrated enough to 
to do similar things, maybe not in quite those quantities, but <laughs> of course, you know that's a hyperbole, uh, of exaggeration. Course. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, it's just like me telling people that the only thing that stops nutgrass is nuclear weapons, uh, but those aren't commonly available, at least in my knowledge. So uh, let's go with the mound drench or the orange oil, and the results will be the same, but the uh, explosive quality will not be there. I thank you very much. You have a good rest of the day, and I'm waiting for 11 o'clock so I can get out to the garden. Very good. Well, if you got any pet questions, stick around and listen to Dr. Kirby or take the radio with you. But always a pleasure to visit, Mike. Have a, have a great day, and I know we'll talk again. All right, back to gardening and back to the phone lines. And Mary is first. Good morning, Mary. Yes, uh, good morning, Bob. Um, I have a Mexican tree grass shrub, and I'm not even sure they even grow around here, except I saw one at the San Antonio Botanical Gardens. And um, I I don't know if they need shade or sun in this area, but I had a problem. I transplanted it to the backyard, and where I had it planted originally, I guess there was a uh, mound of ants and I guess I transferred that to the backyard because now there's a mound of uh, ants, and I tried diatomaceous earth. I guess I'm going to try that mound drench or the orange oil. Okay, well, don't blame yourself. Uh, What happens is when we have rainy weather as we had this spring, those ants make large numbers of queens which fly off to form new mounds everywhere you didn't you didn't spread them around there they flew in from somewhere else so at least ease your own conscious about it but yeah you can either go um with a with an orange oil solution you can use the mound drench or uh you can use like i say this uh safe bait product called come and get it all of those things are effective. And if you're putting out beneficial nematodes for grub worms or fleas or things like that, they don't work as quickly, but they will totally control uh, fire ants as well. Okay. Okay. That, do you know if it, the, uh, the Mexican uh, tree grass, it, if they need shade in this area, or is it sun? I'm going to have to um, tell you I've never heard of Mexican tree grass. I've heard of Mexican okay. feather um, grass. I've heard of... Uh, uh, describe the plant to me, and do you well, have a... it's almost like a sotol. Okay. Uh, but it doesn't have, you know, pointy edges. It's like a sotol. Okay. Uh, I got it got it in Houston, and I, I saw one at the San Antonio Botanical Gardens, okay. and... Um, Anyway, uh, I guess I'm just going to have to. It's have like, ready. is it a flatter leaf or is it a rounder leaf and not quite as wide as a sotol leaf? It's uh, it's a flat. Okay. And okay. it's long, skinny, skinny, and long, just like a sotol. Okay. Um, yeah, they do want uh, pretty much full sun. I mean, if you have sun up to one or two o'clock, that's probably enough. But they are definitely not for the shade. Um, there are two or three different things. In fact, it could easily be, uh, it, we kind of joked uh, the summers I spent in West Texas, it may actually be a Dazzlerian. Uh, it's not Dazzlerian Sotol, and when it blooms, the bloom spike is much shorter, so our joking name for it was Dazzlerian Not Sotol. A little college humor there, but uh, uh, good grass, uh, very good uh, xeriscape plant, but it does want soil that drains well, and it uh, it does need at least half a day of good sun. Okay, and another question. My artemisia is uh, terrible looking. Mm-hmm. Uh, I cut it down to about half, 
and it's just kind of just sitting there. I, it says, you know, it says it's drought tolerant. I really don't want to water it or fertilize it or anything, but it, it looks so sad. How long have you um, had the Artemisia? Uh, probably two years. Mm-hmm. It hadn't been very long. Okay. Well, my experience with Palace Castle, of course, is the most commonly grown Artemisia. And the first year you cut it back and it comes out and looks beautiful. After about three years, you pull it up and you start over with it. It is just, in my opinion, not a long-term plant. Uh, They're beautiful the first couple of years, but after that, even with regular pruning, they just always look ragged. They will survive for quite a few years, but if you're looking for that nice, beautiful, mounding look, uh, plan on planting some fresh ones about every three years. Now, they are tolerant of uh, very dry conditions, but uh, they will look a lot nicer. They don't have to have a lot of water, but uh, they will they will certainly respond if you give them a little bit of organic, not synthetic, but organic fertilizer, a little bit more water. Uh, if it eases your conscience a little bit, put a bucket next to the uh, drip on your air conditioning system and collect that condensate to put on there. That way you know you're not wasting our precious groundwater. And it's uh, my our air conditioners at the nursery produce probably about 10 gallons of condensate a day. And so uh, yeah. where you're trying to be conservative, there are some alternative water sources to ease your conscience. But um, Artemisia, all the Artemisias are going to look a lot nicer. They may survive without water, but uh, if you can give them regular, at least every couple of weeks, a good drenching, they'll sure stay prettier. And my Jerusalem sage looks terrible. It just bloomed, and I know you're supposed to cut the uh, spent flowers, uh, but the whole plant is like it's just kind of withering. It needs needs water. Needs water. The cutting cutting the flowers is cosmetic only. I don't ever get around to it. My Jerusalem sage plants are probably three feet high and five feet wide. But uh, if I don't give them a thorough soaking every couple of weeks, they do not do nearly as well. There's a distance, okay. there's a big difference in thriving and just surviving. And um, okay. there are very few plants outside of a few very xeric uh, desert plants that are going to remain looking nice without occasional watering. Just just water efficiently, and like I say, if you can uh, collect some condensate, collect some rainwater, whatever, but uh, Jerusalem sage, to stay nice looking, needs a, a good watering at least every two weeks. Okay, well, I'm going to do that with the condensation, but uh, do you have anything? Uh, my cemetery iris is in the shade, and it has never bloomed. It's mm-hmm. been sitting there for about three years. Uh, any suggestions? In, um, o- in October, okay. move it to the sun. <laughs> okay. Not, don't do it this okay. time of year. It's a little tough to transplant, but uh, uh, all of these rhizomatous irises, we call them, uh, they're going to make lots of foliage in the shade and nothing else. In the sun, you will get spring blooms. If you really like iris, uh, there are a lot of new hybrids, which are what we call rebloomers. It can bloom two, three, four, five times a summer, and I would sure consider those in the future. Okay. Thank you, Bob. I appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Mary. Thank you. Uh, Let's get one more call in here before this break, and that would be Paul. Good morning, Paul. Hi, Bob. Good morning. Morning, sir. Um, Three quick questions. Uh, One's on uh, orchids. I know you have a long history with orchids. Uh, I uh, (laughs) hate to admit how long, but I do. Yes, sir. (laughs) I received one as a gift, a really tall one, beautiful. 
Uh, it still looks nice. It's dropped a few of the blooms, but is there a, uh, what's the recommended special care for them? I have it uh, inside the house by a window. Doesn't get a lot of light, but it does get some light and some indoor lighting as well. Do you happen uh, to know what about. what kind of orchid you've narrowed it down to? One or two hundred thousand at this uh-huh. point. <laughs> Does well, it have broad uh, flat leaves and a tall bloom spike? Does it? Yes. Uh, okay, so it is probably in the Phalaenopsis family. Indoors, it wants about the brightest light you can give it. It it will it would be hard. I mean, don't put it right up against a, a west window, but they want they want really bright light to do well. Uh, as far and, and so many of these comes with such stupid instructions, it tells you to put an ice cube on it once a week or something like that. Water thoroughly. When you pick up that pot and it starts feeling a little bit lighter in weight, it's time to water thoroughly. I would just stick it in the kitchen sink and flood it and then put it back in whatever decorative pot it came in. But it definitely needs to move over to a sunnier window when it finishes flowering. Um, it's probably growing in something we call long fiber sphagnum moss. And I find, yeah, long-term phalaenopsis just are not going to do well in this. It's a great way to start them. But when it finishes flowering, uh, take it and repot it into a fir bark mix, a mixture of charcoal and bark, maybe with a little bit of lava in with it. Any good nursery is going to have a, a pre-bag mix that will work well. But um, phalaenopsis, the, the grocery stores sell them and people gift them practically like cut flowers, expecting people to enjoy them and throw them away. I happen to like to keep them because they can bloom better and better every year, and some of them are just absolutely gorgeous. But that's one thing I just consider mandatory. When it finishes this bloom cycle, get it out of the sphagnum and into uh, a better mix, and uh, you can just a little bit of care. You'll enjoy it for years to come, and it can stay in bloom. I have a friend. Um, he's not in this area anymore, but uh, he had a phalaenopsis in a wooden hanging basket that i think either had buds or flowers on it constantly for six years so uh Mm. they they can certainly reward you well now the problem with that is like me you will get hooked on them and you know it's easy to go from one plant to five plants to needing a greenhouse and it kind of goes from there so be aware of what you're getting into but if you'll if you will repot it when it finishes flowering give a little basic care um it'll do extremely well for you Great. Thank you. Now, um, variegated ginger, I have some planted on what would be the south uh, side of the house. Mm-hmm. It gets uh, it gets uh, sun really throughout the day, but it gets that really hot sun uh-huh. towards the latter part of the day. Um, some of it looks really fresh and, and nice color to it. Uh, some of the other ones look a little bit more, you know, beat up <laughs> by the sun. I wanted to be able to transplant them into a more shadier spot. Is this the right time of the year to do it? Fall would be a better time. Um, You know, variegated ginger is going to look about like Paul does. You put him out there in the morning and he looks real happy. You put him out there in the hot afternoon sun and he starts showing it. Uh, They're just not going to stay pretty. They will will survive the hot sun, but uh, they're going to look better longer in a little bit shadier area. But now, are are these some that have been in the ground a while? Do you know when they were planted? 
Yeah, they've been to the ground for a while. Yeah, then I, I would wait till fall to transplant them. If you'd if you'd planted them two weeks ago and told me you were just now realized they were not real happy, I'd tell you to move them this afternoon. But uh, if you can wait till it cools off slightly, they will survive the shock of transplant a whole lot better. And then lastly, um, angel trumpets. I have one um, uh, on the um, east side of the house that gets morning sun. A uh, little bit of afternoon sun, but primarily morning sun, beautiful. It's just beautiful. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have as many blooms as I like, but it's beautiful. The one in the backyard, which gets full sun, uh, the leaves are yellow, and it just keeps dropping leaves, and I water it, and sometimes it appears to, be, to, to do better, but uh, not anywhere. At one point, I had over 100 blooms on it a right. year or two ago. Right. And uh, and now it's just it's just it's just yellow. It just looks weak. And okay. I've fertilized it. I've done all of that. Well, and and these are the the brugmansias, the ones where the flowers hang down. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That's yeah. These the, are the gold ones. Yeah. Have. They're they're two angel trumpets. One of them's a datura that's upright. The other's a brugmansia that hangs down. They will tolerate the full sun, but you're going to have to be consistent with a lot more water, a lot more often. Um, in the sun, they will have more flowers, actually, than they will in the shade, but they do not like to dry out. They will need a thorough soaking like every other day. Uh, as far as flowering, they bloom best when the days are short and the nights are long. They typically bloom very well in the spring, very well in the fall, but in the middle of the summer, they're pretty much going to be foliage plants. And in some cases, those droopy leaves are just from the heat. It doesn't mean that they have gotten dry. But if you're getting not only drooping but yellowing and dropping leaves, they're just not getting as much water as they need. You can plant them oh. in a shadier area and have fewer flowers and less watering, or you can spend a little bit more time watering and fertilizing out in the sun and have more flowers. I know what you're talking about. We counted one time. We had one of these things in a wash tub, and it had 125 flowers on it at one time. Oh, they're just amazing. Yeah. They really but, are. But I, my business partner has them, several of them growing in her uh, flower garden in front of her home, and they just look mm, like not pleasant stuff in the middle of the summer. But uh, if you can, like I say, thorough watering every other day, uh, they'll be beautiful plants year-round, but no matter what you do, your most of your blooms are going to come spring and fall. Excellent. Thank you for your time. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Paul. Thank you for the call today. All right, let's get back to gardening. It's going to be Ray, John, Roy, and Rhonda. And Ray is up first. Good morning, Ray. Happy Sunday to you, Bob. And to you as well, sir. Thank you. Um uh, I have a, a crepe myrtle, crepe myrtle, myrtle? Uh-huh. bombombilias around three footers. Okay. Uh, I see birds weaving in and out the, the plants. Are they eating the, the butts or are they looking for insects? Um, they could be nesting. They could be looking for insects. In the case of the crepe myrtle, um, when those old, you know, after the flowers drop, uh, they they actually form a seed pod. Once it dries, the birds will come in and eat the seeds, but that usually doesn't happen till a little bit later in the fall. So um, because of the thick foliage, 
Um, it's not unusual to have uh, cardinals or wrens or things like that nesting in that thick foliage. So uh, birds, if they're if they're hopping about, they're probably looking for bugs to eat. If they seem to just be coming and going, you may very well have a family <laughs> raising a raising a nest full of little ones inside those plants. That's all I need. I'm bigger than I. Also, my second question. Uh, I try to grow um, grass where where it's needed. Uh, uh, probably at uh, thirty foot or by by six feet where okay. the grass don't grow. I throw some seeds down the grass seeds, uh-huh. and then I I, I I wet it a little bit, and then I put uh, um, dirt on top of it. Okay, which I go by at the, at the plant. Uh, what do you call it? Mulch. Uh huh. Mulch. Yeah, compost. Compost, yes, and and um, all I all I get is weeds. Okay, is this area sunny or shady? It's sunny. Okay, and what kind of seed did you plant? Uh, just a grass seeds. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, unfortunately, there are a lot of kinds of grass seeds, and the only one that's going to do well here this time of year is Bermuda grass. Um, so you need to be sure that you're getting what is called common Bermuda. And the seed doesn't really want to be buried very deeply, and it needs a lot of moisture to get started. doesn't have to be a large quantity, but it needs it frequently. If you're trying to get Bermuda seed to grow this time of year, you probably need to be watering it three times a day for a couple of minutes at a time. Once it sprouts, once it starts to turn green, if you want to put a little um, you know, soil on top of it, that's certainly okay, but um, you got to be sure you get the right seed, which would be Bermuda. It's got to be in the okay. sun, which is what you're describing. But okay. this this means water it morning, evening, and once in between uh, every day. It'll take about two weeks for it to germinate and start growing, and then you can cut back to probably watering once a day. But um, I think you probably buried your seed a little bit too deeply. I'm not sure it was the right seed to begin with. And I don't think you watered it quite enough. So I wish you'd call me first and we could have avoided this uh, first expenditure of money with no results and gotten some results. But, uh, yeah, get yourself some good Bermuda grass. Or here's the other option. If you have good grass in other parts of your yard, you can go just go dig up uh Oh, a few little plugs that are two or three inches square and just put a little compost or soil back in these little tiny sections of grass that you've dug up. Go and plant them just kind of like a checkerboard in this area where you need to get grass started. And it's kind of instant results. Throw a little good organic fertilizer on and those little plugs will spread out and take over pretty quickly. And you don't have to go through that uh, difficult period of trying to keep the seed and moist enough to grow. And, uh, you know, those little little tiny plugs that you take out of the other part of your yard, they're going to grow over in two weeks' time. And you'll hardly even know you ever took a, a plug out of there. Okay. Is it, is it compo in in the in the in the bag that comes in a black bag? Uh-huh. Is it better is is it better than the 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 one that you buy at the company? Well, it just depends on what the company is. Um their products like uh Ladybug, like Nature's Creation, like New Earth's Top Shelf Line, there are some very good compost in bags. Uh there's some by companies like Miracle Grow that I would not put on my yard. 
So it's it's just like anything else you buy in a bag. Uh, it all depends on who put it in the bag as to whether it's good or not. But if it says if it says Ladybug, if it says New Earth, if it sells nature, it says Nature's Creation, it's going to be a good product. Oh, okay. Have, have, have you ever tried uh, mothballs underneath the, the the house to kill spiders or get rid of a uh, fleas or anything like that? It'll kill spiders and fleas, and it may give you cancer. Uh, it's called paradichlorobenzene or naphthalene or the things that are in mothballs. And uh, uh, if you want to be with us a long time, you do not want to breathe a lot of that. So maybe if you're going to take a two-month vacation, it would be okay to do. But uh, those are very toxic chemicals that I would not want to be breathing. Oh, okay. Okay, because, I mean, because a long time ago, they, they used to use them on the... On the Mm-hmm. Desk and the drawers. To oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> and how, how come? I'm in mean, there. I know it was a long time ago, but how how did they use them? And I mean, you cannot throw them underneath the house. Well, it uh, again, they've always been dangerous. Our houses used to be a little bit better ventilated. People didn't get quite so much fumes from them. But nowadays, that our homes are much tighter, much less air circulation. Um, and they've never been good for you, but, uh, people didn't used to live as long. And I think that's probably one of the reasons. So, uh, I'm, I'm going to use a cedar closet to avoid the moths and I'm going to use something else underneath my house. It's just, they're dangerous products. If you're going to have the, uh, likelihood of breathing the fumes from them, I just wouldn't do that. Thank you. Uh, my last question, um, when I see an ant, an ant hill, uh, mm-hmm. mount, because of the products being so expensive nowadays, I I, I put uh, bleach in a bottle or a sprayer mm-hmm. and put some um, uh, soap, like dish soap. Yeah. And, and I spray the, the mount and they go away. Yeah, it, it, it works, but lots of times you end up killing your grass and other things as well. It just kills more than more than you really want to, Ray, but it does work, and it is very economical. Listen, I've got to get three more callers in here before the end of the show, so let me go ahead and talk to John. Good morning, John. Good morning, Bob. How are you? I'm good, sir. How about you? Great, great, great. I went to visit your store last weekend, picked up a Shishido pepper and a uh, Carolina Reaper. Well, I hope you hope you enjoyed looking around. It's a pretty place. My little ones loved it. <laughs> That's good. What can I do for you? Um, I caught the butt end. Well, I caught the front end of one question, or I don't even know if it was a question. It was something about the EcoSmart for spiders. That's a product that a lot of exterminators use. It is uh, it is good material, but I don't think you can find it in the stores. If you want to go online to buy it, uh, they do they do have several uh, several products that, uh, like say, a lot of your more organic pest control companies use their products, and they do work. Yes, sir. And the other one was uh, I caught the butt end of that the the next one. It was about the borax soap. Yeah. What was that? I think your phone just cut off. Uh, borax contains boric acid, and it's commonly used uh, for controlling uh, roaches, controlling ants. Uh, boric acid is toxic to many different insects. You don't want to use it in your flower beds because it's also toxic to plants. But in your home, boric acid can be pretty good to take care of a number of different insect issues. That's what I was going to, it was a, was it a mixture that 
was you had mixed together or you in this case out? in this case it was uh mixing it with sugar to make it more attractive to the roaches to bring them in so it could kill them that's what i wanted because i went to my storage building last night yep. to look for something covered <laughs> on a light and like five roaches yeah uh, yeah they're big enough to scare you in, in florida call they call those things water bugs because nobody wants to admit that a roach gets that big yes sir uh, heard you and Thomas talking about snakes. I got a great video of a blue indigo eating about a four-foot chicken snake. Oh, man. And indigos are neat snakes. They're just cannibalistic. They eat rattlesnakes, but they basically they will eat any, any lizard or reptile they can catch along with uh, birds and rabbits and uh, rats and other things. So uh, um, they're, they're not something you want to cuddle up to, but they're sure nice to have on your ranch. Yes, sir, Bob. I appreciate everything. You got some more callers that need to get in and talk. I'll talk to you another week. John, I appreciate it. You have a wonderful Sunday. All right. Well, six minutes, that's about enough time for two phone calls. So we'll talk to Roy and then Rhonda. Good morning, Roy. Bob, how you doing? I'm good, sir. How about you? Oh, pretty good. A little bit hot, but I'll make it. (laughs) (laughs) It's July and it's Texas, so that's what it means. Okay, I got, uh, have you heard about the tycoon seed not going to be available anymore? The tatumi seed? No, tycoon tomato seed. Oh, tycoon, yeah, they they are discontinuing that uh, particular brand. Um, uh, there is still a fair amount of it out there. I suspect that uh, some companies will still continue to produce, if not tycoon, a, a tomato very similar but uh yeah. as far as mass production of the seed because it's it has been a fairly popular commercial tomato i suspect they just think they've got something better now but yeah i don't look for it to be off the market for probably five years kind of like green comet broccoli right they said it wasn't going to be around but uh your small time growers which is what most nurseries are they're going to continue to have tycoons for some time Okay, I got uh, I picked up twelve of them this spring from Greengate. Yeah, and uh, they're the best ones in my garden. Right, I got them isolated away from the other tomatoes, and I'd like to try to save the seed. You can certainly do that, but realize since they are a modern hybrid, that the uh, uh, the gene pool I don't want to get too technical is yeah. such that they may not come true totally from seed now a plant that's been self-pollinated over year after year after year after year after year like a hundred percent of the seed will come very much like what the parent was tycoon some of them will some of them won't but uh i know ronnie over at green gate's got a pretty good stash of seeds so you're going to still be able to get tycoon for a while yeah, they're my best-looking tomato this year. They're bigger than softball, and I got a whole bunch of them. Oh, yeah. They're they're, I, to turn right. Yeah, I I don't like the flavor quite as well as I do some others, but as far as productivity, it's very hard to beat a tycoon. Okay, and uh, have you heard of the Gold Coast okra from Baker Creek? I haven't tried that one yet. It's nematode-resistant. You know, nematodes are never a problem in my garden, so I wouldn't buy it just because it's nematode-resistant. Yeah. But if it's a good okra, I mean, okra is one thing that anybody with a sunny garden can grow well. So if you've tried it, I'd love to hear what you think of the flavor and the productivity of it. Well, I, I can tell you, I've got them in the garden now. I did, like you said, put them in six-packs and uh-huh. then let them get about six inches tall and put them out in an even row. Yeah. That came out great. Good. And uh, they're about four feet tall, and I can't keep up with them now. They're putting out so many. Okra. <laughs> and the flavor is good. Okay, well, I'll try some next year. I like Baker I, Creek. I, They're good people. 
Yeah, and my last question is, uh, this might be kind of funny. I put some Alaska fish fertilizer out of my garden here a month or so ago. Mm-hmm. And I uh, poured it all over the garden where I needed it. Next morning I went out there and there were holes dug everywhere. A coat oh, yeah. got in there. <laughs> looking for a fish. <laughs> yeah, I know a I know a person who claimed that that fertilizer killed a lot of his plants because the whole family of raccoons came through and just destroyed everything. Um, I'll tell you next time try instead of Alaska try Medina's new liquid fish product. I don't think it has okay. as much of that aroma to it, and it's still a great fertilizer. But yeah, it, it's. Uh, I still got two bottles of this stuff. Can I mix something with it? Maybe throw blood meal on it or something? Or? Um, you could always give that a try. I put out my live trap and haul off the raccoons yeah. is the way I deal yeah, I, with I it. Did that. I caught about 50 coons here in live traps. One of them put me in an emergency room already. But uh, yeah. Be a little bit more careful and uh, transport them to coon heaven if you have to. But, uh, Roy, I appreciate it. Let me get Rhonda right, in here before you. the end of the show. Right, Good Bob, mo- thanks, Bob. Thank you. Goodbye. Uh, good morning, Rhonda. Good morning. Uh, we have two oak trees. Okay. Planted them at the same time, bought them from the same place, and one is growing upright. It's a beautiful tree, all bushy. And the other one is spindly. The limbs come out scrawny. It's just as tall, but they're just they come out and down okay looking like a willow do do it do they look healthy both of them but they're just growing different shapes right right you know it's thick and one is scrawny looking it it probably is just differences in the trees Uh, i've got two cedar elms in my front yard and one of them drops its leaves a month before the other in the fall and comes out a month later in the spring. And they came from the same nurseryman, and they've been doing the same thing for about eight or nine years now. So I think long-term, they will both make nice trees for you, but I don't think it's your anything you're doing or failing to do. I think it's just like, you know, you may have two kids, and one of them's a little short and heavy, and the other's tall and skinny. It's right. just the genetics are a little different, even though they are live oak trees, both right. of them the live oaks. The other one we have to go, the, the scrawny one I call, we have to go and cut the limbs so we can walk under it yep. because they're growing down. But see, that's normal because that live oak wants to make a shady area for its roots. So uh-huh. I don't think it's anything abnormal. It's going to be a little bit more pruning. Fertilize it more? or no, Fertilize it and prune it as you need to and give it plenty of deep watering and it'll make a good tree. Got to go. This is KTSA Radio, San Antonio, Texas.